0: Can you please pronounce your name correctly for me? My
1: name is Brainerd Carey.
0: And where were you born and raised?
1: I was born and raised in um, Yonkers, New York, but born in Manhattan. So raised in, um, you know, it's kind of on the border of the Bronx. That was my hometown in new york city was where i saw art and you know had fun
0: and you are quite literally like you do so much i don't even know how you find time in the day between all the books that you've written which are literally about how to be successful in the arts world and your radio show and praxis like what other things do you do
1: well, I, I do other things, but really, I think you know all of this, especially even just the interviews. People say, "How do you do so many?" You know, and I, and all of these are labors of love. They really are. The books, the teaching. You know, I'm also writing a memoir and and and, and reading other books. But you know, they're all things that I'm really into. So uh, it doesn't feel like I'm, you know, wearing ten hats or going crazy. It all seems to be. Uh, kind of emanating from the same place which is things that I'm really interested in
0: so where did this all start I'm, I'm often interested in like how do creative people get created so was it your parents a teacher like how did you even get into the have an interest in the arts
1: well that's a that's a good question I'll have to spend um, a good amount of lifetime quickly but yeah my father was a a college professor at Bronx Community College taught music. Was the chair of the department. My mother was uh, also a musician, um, but none of them were really practicing musicians. They would play folk songs as I was growing up. People would sing around the piano or something. That was really my introduction to arts, and they were sensitive to the arts. But I went to college, SUNY Purchase, and began learning about art. You know, but then even then, the conversation was that you know it's not about selling it; it's just about doing something really authentic and and becoming a waiter or waitress or something you know and then i got out of college and i went to block island which is where i used to summer and i um i was applying to things and sort of frustrated like jesus how do i get into a gallery and grants and am i gonna have to wait forever it seems like it because these applications aren't working i opened up a gallery uh you know, a summer gallery, and also started publishing a magazine. I know that sounds really ambitious, but you know, I'm like, whatever, 22, it didn't seem like that much. And I did what I could. And and it worked, right. And so I learned about like, wow, I'm showing other artists. So suddenly I could see what it's like from the other side. And I learned a lot there. Eventually, I I moved to back to New York, New York City. and, um, And I had a little storefront in New York City on 10th Street. And I was giving out hugs and foot washings as kind of a performance to the public and and that went over very well in New York and then I got into the Whitney Biennial, which was a major show giving out hugs and foot washings, which is the kind of thing that people say what you know <laughs> why is this in the museum but there it was and and since then after that I, I people used to ask me after I got into the biennial because it is this kind of Uh, once-in-a-lifetime show, this mythic show for artists. It gives you so much international attention. They would say, how did you get in there? And I'm just the kind of person where I told them how, and, and because up to that point, I was asking those questions, and nobody was telling me anything about how to get into these places. They made it seem like they were just sort of chosen or something. and So that got me into professional development, because I realized I would like to help more artists get into great shows. But it's not just my story, how I got in. It's also, what's their story? You know, how to, how, to, how is it going to work just for their medium and their outlook? And, and so that brings us almost up to the present, where I I started interviewing people for Yale Radio, not a paid gig, but I just was was a way for me initially to gain access to more people, to be honest with you. I I wanted to meet certain curators or museum directors, and I found that I could interview anybody fairly easily.
0: (laughs) I I completely understand. That is part of my MO as well.
1: Right. It's it's, it's immediate access to all kinds of people. And I wrote for the Brooklyn Rail for a little while, um, but Yale Radio, I realized, had an even bigger ring to it, you know. it sounds like you're getting an honorary doctorate from Yale or something.
0: It does indeed. I mean, just the name, I mean, Yale's master program is infamous in the, in the arts industry. So if you can put Yale on in front of anything you're doing, you automatically have an additional sort of, uh, you know, elevation to it.
1: Right, right, right. So, um, so that's where things are for now. And, And of course, in this time of, all my classes that I teach in Praxis Center, which come out of the book, it's an online school for artists, is really is, is really doing very well now. The, the, the school is kind of filled with students and members and it's a very supportive community. And at this time where we're really just working on like grants and all kinds of stuff. It's a special time because of COVID for artists. That brings us up to the present. Zoom talks, Zoom studio visits. We could talk about a number of things, but that's where my efforts are right now as well.
0: Well, to be honest, I mean, I don't want to ask you to basically like reiterate things that you have written already in books. So I'm actually more interested in sort of contemporary, like really what's going on now. What's going on with, with all the changes that are potentially coming forward with the futures?
1: Well, what's happening now in, you know, at the time of this recording in um, in April of of two thousand and twenty is we're in the middle of the crisis, right? It hasn't peaked in New York, or it's about to peak in New York, but already the art world has dramatically changed. Um, there are museums and galleries who are putting collections online so you can walk through them virtually. I mean, that happened in like a week. It was amazing and other things are changing too places are are doing zoom video talks i mean i'm doing that too but kind of conferences online teaching you know and you know all the colleges have just immediately moved online with doctors appointments and and no matter what's happening at the time of this recording whether you hear this this interview in 2020 or 2025 What's happening in the art world now will impact it in the future in the sense that we're always going to be, just like with education, a hybrid form now. It's going to be part in-person and part online. That will be, I think, the strong paradigm for the future. So where we are now is all the organizations that would support artists in the past with shows have and grants have now put all their money into emergency relief for COVID artists. And what that means is not artists with uh, the virus, but artists who are affected by it in terms of sales or, or or even gig work,
0: right? Okay, so you brought up teaching, and I mean, I'm a professor as well, and I've been teaching online for the past like three or four years now, and so I I'm interested in sort of how you think the future of academia is gonna gonna go.
1: I just talked to like, I can't say who, but it was the, the the head of an MFA department in New York City and the answer I got to that question was they truly don't know it's admissions right now and they truly don't know what's going to happen in the fall with classes and dorms and everything. I mean, one of the, the, the questions was that was set to me by this uh, MFA chair was who is to say exactly when everyone can come back into the dorms and who's to say that people who are coming from all over the world, from China and the Middle East, want to send their kids to New York now because the coronavirus will be back this winter so you know most likely a hybrid form is what i was hearing it's not finalized but that's i'm really getting that from yeah that talk with the mfa chair of a, a big university in New York that it'll most likely be a hybrid form it's intensely under discussion now
0: well and what's going to I mean you know cuz i'm an and also a practicing artist and and i'm always wondering like how is our not not our practice because we'll still make artwork but how will our outlets be changed because i feel like this is going to in some ways push a lot of galleries and a lot of different uh, you know buying uh technologies forward
1: yeah i think so i think that's true i i know that already i've been hearing artists saying things like i made a sale last week and asked the gallerist like what you made a sale and they said yeah collectors are still buying because they may be at home, they may be even a little worried, but they are um, they're still buying art, uh, you know, shopping to feel better. So I, in one way some things would affect it, but I, I think the idea of virtual studio visits are going to change. Right now, in the Praxis Center online kind of forum that I direct, we're doing a lot of virtual studio visits, and that's such a turn on. It's like even with a even with a phone and you're in Amsterdam or Israel, and these are you know from all over the world, and then it's, okay, now you talk about your work. Let's look at your studio. And and there you are in Amsterdam looking through this guy's paintings and saying, wait, stop at that one. Could you put that one out? Could you come a little closer? I, I need to see the surface of that. I mean, it's amazing what you can get just with a phone. So I would imagine for our practice, for practicing artists, it will be curators doing virtual studio visits. That's, that's I would imagine that's a good projection that will come true because it's it works
0: oh yeah i've been hearing stories about people coming up with the most creative unique ways to use the internet i even heard about a photographer that was in i think norway or the netherlands hiring a model in poland and they did a like an online thing where the photographer was able to control the camera virtually while the model set up the camera and then posed for it
1: Right, right, right. That's fantastic. Yeah, I would think there'll be more things like that, using it as a medium. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, of course there's been talk about Zoom. Maybe this will they'll get it resolved, but being kind of getting Zoom bombed, you know, people throwing porn onto onto, you know, sites where educators are talking to kids and, you know, kind of causing suits to happen, you know, people getting sued. So it's interesting to see how that'll all work itself out.
0: Well, let's get into a little bit of it. Like, so, selling online—that's one of the things that I have a, a, a sort of bee in my bonnet about because I've never been able to sort of crack that code of like, how does it work? I know you literally have a book on it, and I apologize for asking you to like tell me some tips on it, but I feel like that's changing a little bit. Of course, right now with the, with all the the quarantines and all the, and the fears of the future and everything like that.
1: Yes, and no, it's it's I mean, I, I, I I'm happy to talk about that and could talk a lot about that. I think that's really interesting right now. I mean, there's a lot of ways we could talk about selling art online, but essentially, it's still happening. It used to be it was getting to be the dominant form. Galleries and museums were initially the dominant form of discovering work and potentially buying it. Now it's online, and that was before Covid. so, where should we start? How to sell online? So there's a there's a, there's so many ways.
0: I was going to say well one of my pet peeves is there are so many ways. It's it's that I mean, in the old days, it was pretty straightforward. Curator, gallery, collector, you know, pretty straightforward. And then that gallery would introduce you to another gallery or that curator would introduce you to another gallery. And it was a a reasonably linear pattern to sort of the way of the the artist's career. But now there are simply such a sheer volume of potential ways to do it. The question is, like, how do you edit down all of the the options into something that's a feasible, workable way to do it?
1: Well, okay, that's good. So let's make it simple, right? Let's make it nice and simple. That
0: so, was simple for you?
1: Well, you know, because, you know, there's a lot of ways to do it. There's websites uh, that, that say they'll sell it for you. There's all kinds of things. There's uh, – I, I just gave a talk on just creating kind of – Facebook ads and lead magnets and funnels that gets even more complex but but basically it comes down to this you have to have some way for people to pay for your art and that means at the very least if we don't talk about anything else in this whole you know discussion with you it's having a PayPal button so they can click it and it immediately pays for the work paypal.me is one of one such buttons instead of giving them your paypal name and sending them an invoice paypal.me for example is where one click and they type in whatever number they want let's say it's five hundred dollars one more click and it's going to your account i mean i i can't say how critical that is and i know that sounds sort of mundane in a way but oftentimes you know we could talk for half an hour or more now about uh, sales platforms and how to blog and drive traffic to your work and but the main thing is that you have a way to buy it, you know, because artists often get to that point and people are interested, but there's this awkwardness of the purchase. So it's about the same issue almost as having selling work out of your studio. I don't know. Is that good for starters? Because I'd like to have people have digestible things from this talk. And it's such a complex subject that... It is. I mean, to-
0: well, it, it, to me, it's it's about like... You know, artists are pretty good, generally. They they make beautiful things or objects or performances, and they oftentimes can maybe write about them in some way and compel people to be engaged and interested in their subject matter or their intention or their concept. But we as artists are often really, really bad at closing the deal.
1: Right. Right, so closing the deal is critical because, you know, it, Aside from all the ways you could begin to make this happen, this is the essence of selling it online. It's having a price, right, which also is a stumbling point for a lot of artists, but having a price. Then definitely having a way to pay for it, like a button again. And the third thing is closing the deal, as you say. And closing the deal, one simple method is you have someone look at several works of art. Let's say it's a web page or a PDF they like, yeah, they like your work. Say to them, which one of these is your favorite? And they don't have to say much more to point to one and say this one or, you know, number six. Okay. Then you say something about number six. You explain the process behind it and you compliment them as well. You say, you know, if it is, that's one of my favorite pieces. I love that one because I painted it when I was thinking of this or And this person died or who knows what was happening. You know, you tell them a little bit about the story of it. You compliment them for being sensitive enough to pick that one out. And then you say, would you like to own this? I mean, you have to pause and wait, but you have to be that bold to say that. And they'll say, well, I don't know. And then you can say, well, for $200, it's yours. And they would say, what? And you say, well, two hundred dollars down, and we could work out a payment plan on this if you want. You know, whatever, whatever you want to do, it's up to you. Make it easy. It's not a hard sell. And suddenly they're thinking, wow, for two hundred bucks, I own this. The payment plan, even if your work is three thousand bucks, I might be able to just swing it. You're in conversation. That's one way to close a <laughs> sale.
0: Wow. Okay, that's very. My my palms are getting sweaty just thinking about even doing that. So yeah. Okay.
1: Well, that's the problem, right? He has sweaty palms, and I think for most artists that's the case. So that is almost like a scripted way of closing a sale. But what i found from students in the group is we're terrified of these things also. When they finally got up the guts to do it somehow uh, or kept reprogramming the voices in their heads, then it wasn't so horrible. And when someone said yes, it was like, you know, Euphoric, right? And you realize, Jesus, it works. And that reinforces the next time. I mean, even for salesmen of whatever who are, who are pros, it's not easy to say something is for sale and to try to manage it. But if you don't do that, and here's really the critical thing if you don't know how to close a sale, chances are they will not close by themselves because collectors will feel too awkward to even ask. It's very hard to ask an artist, is something for sale?
0: it's such a big thing i mean okay so you know i keep hearing different stories from different people so like i'll talk to gallerists and i hear there's a debate between galleries about whether or not to even put prices on websites and then of course i hear different stories about people selling through instagram and people saying that websites are outdated at this point you can just use instagram as your portfolio like what's what seems like the most appropriate way these days, because I mean, all of our time and energy is sort of, you know, it's its a limited amount of time and energy we're willing to put towards this kind of stuff. So w- how can we use it most effectively?
1: I mean, that's a different answer for different people because some people will say, I hate Instagram. Even if I said Instagram was number one, you know, and I'm not saying that, but some people just like, for example, just don't like Instagram or don't like Twitter. Or don't like Facebook, or don't want to deal with newsletters, or something else. So it's like, for one, it's what's comfortable. But just talk about Instagram because that is pretty simple. I don't think websites are dead, but Instagram, there's an artist named Ashley Longshore that sells well on Instagram. And what she does is, you know, you post images of work, but like all social media, you're trying to engage the public. So you know, show work in progress, show, you know, have fun with it, show some outrageous things. If you keep it too straight, if it's just like an image of work, an image of work, an image of work, you know, I mean, if it reads well on on Instagram, then that may work. But, you know, to try to engage the audience somehow with jokes, with content other than your work is what's important. And Ashley Longshore is an example of that. She makes jokes, different things. But what happens is, you know, eventually you have to close the sale again. You have to tell someone this is available. So at the very least on Instagram, you can say this is available, you know, link in my bio. And the link in your bio goes to a page where they can email you. And it's a little bit awkward, but that's one way to do it. Or, you know, direct message me is a better one. This work is available. Direct message me if you're interested. That's Instagram. That's the whole process, soup to nuts, right? Just post work. This is available. Direct message me if you're interested. No prices. Someone says I'm interested. And then you go through that potential closing. Ideally, get them on the phone or a Zoom chat because we don't really want to just buy art. No collector really wants to buy art just from like a button and a click. They want to feel like they know the artist a little bit. It's a really special purchase. You know, it's not like jewelry or any other product. You're buying art from somebody and. And even the motives for art, for the reason making art, is so mysterious to buyers. So, so that's that's how's that for a, a simple Instagram soup to nuts sales process.
0: Reasonably good, actually. Those, were, yeah, that's pretty helpful. But so 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 websites, how are they still fitting into this whole criteria? Because as I said, I had conversations with some galleries that put prices and some don't. I mean, what, you know, how about artists selling for themselves and, and then how do they, what should they sell? Because I have a personal belief that like, there's a certain price point that sells really, really well on the internet. And it's, there's, it's a, a lower price point and then a higher sort of blue chip price point. And I feel like everybody in the middle is sort of struggling.
1: Okay. Yeah. So a few things there, Ashley Longshore is the example that I mentioned in Instagram, but she's selling things online for upwards of $10,000. So she's in that middle category They're not, She's not blue chip at all. Probably no one's heard of her that's on this, um, that's listening, she's uh, not a known artist. So it can happen that way, but your question about websites and their role in all this now, websites and selling things from websites, like Squarespace is a website, for example, that has a good kind of e-commerce platform. Is this dead or not? And what's the use of of websites? Well, it's not dead. You can sell through your website using, you know, prints or something, not expensive things. Ashley Longshore is doing it with more expensive things because she generates phone calls and a discussion. So you can close at a higher price point. It's true that no one's just going to click through and buy something for $5,000 or even a thousand. You want a conversation. So websites can start that conversation. Your work can be neatly organized on there. But the most underrated thing about a website that most people don't do to drive sales and other things, because for galleries, you're not competing with them. If, you know, you have a gallery, they don't have an exclusive to everything. If you're selling some of your things online that are in the gallery, you can talk to the gallery about it. But the rule is don't sell them for less than what the gallery is selling them for or you're, you're undermining yeah. the collectors. But But what's really kind of, not spoken enough about on sites is websites is the importance of a blog. If you're going to have an artist website, you have to have a blog and you have to write in it. And the reason is this, that Google bots who are looking, you know, when you when you're, someone's searching for you or something related, they scan websites to look for activity on it. And if they see a website that hasn't been updated in a week or a month, it looks like a dead website to them.
0: It's so funny. Because I I teach web design and in the old days, you know, 15, 10 years ago, it used to be that the longer a website was up and the more it was the same and consistent, it was better on search engines. And then they changed the algorithm to be the opposite way, which is the more frequently you update it or add to the website, the higher you are on search engine optimization.
1: Right, because of course we're in the world of blogs, you know, and and so as an artist, I have a blog. And again, I, I like Squarespace a lot, but of course you can use WordPress or any site, but they all have blogs now, a blog page. And a blog is critical because number one, if you update it every day or every week, it shows you an active website. But even more importantly, it builds an audience for your art. If you blog once a week and show unfinished work in your studio and talk about it or or how you're moving your studio, or how your studio is your kitchen table, whatever it is. And then you post the link to those blog posts, let's say on Facebook and Twitter, that'll drive traffic to your website and ultimately to, to sales. So that's what it's used for. I think a website's important for the blog, and I think it's an important you know, uh, repository of your work that you own. Because you don't own Instagram. It could be deleted if you post one nipple on there. You know what I mean?
0: It's like... <laughs> It's true. Yes. Sad, but true. But yeah.
1: So so the website security in a sense, too.
0: You know, something that that kills me and I didn't even know I've watched some of your YouTube videos on this, but I'm going to ask you a little bit, hopefully a little bit differently. Uh, Writings for uh, artist statements, residencies, grants, these kinds of things i've been hearing different stories from different people about whether or not an artist should write their own or whether it's appropriate to have either like just a straight-up writer or a curator or somebody else either write for you or assist you in writing these things
1: Oh, which things there's there's two essential pieces of writing which is the artist statement and the artist bio which which piece of writing or are you talking about something else
0: Oh, you can talk about both. That's fine. I mean, I was thinking more artist statement. Is a bio necessary?
1: Yeah, and and to talk about both of them because I don't think you need a writer for either. I mean, it's it's that's one of the busiest things in, in in my online school is the editing of statements and bios. I have a professional editor in there, and I think this is one of like one of these critical things that all artists need to need to have a good artist statement and bio and have it edited well. So. An artist statement, let's talk with a bio first because that's really simple. A bio should be 250 words. It should be in third person. And it should sound like what's on the back flap of a book, that little bio about the author. Really minimal, 250 words or less. Just the who, what, where. Who you are, where you're from, what you're doing. That's it. No interpretation or anything, just really basic. And if you have a thin resume, a bio, a short bio can be helpful this is the kind of work you are where you're coming from and uh, and uh, a few things about perhaps your medium or some awards you've gotten or, or something like that done any questions about that cuz the bio simple artist statement is something else
0: well i mean in the bio i mean if we're just going to get to the nuts and bolts of it so like would you put your education and if you're in some collections some things like that like you know what what are the, what's the hierarchy of most important things to put in to least important things to put in
1: that's a good question. So the bio, you're trying to fit it into 250 words, but it should give them an immediate orientation into like who you are, you know. Um, so that should say uh, in, in, I guess, h- hierarchical form, what's first would be, yeah, where you're from and where you're educated potentially. If 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 you went to school and that's important to you or just where you're from and what kind of work you do where you live, and if you've been in any collections. And I'm really saying it in the order that it's written in. If you've been in any collections or had any awards, that's how it finishes up. And that's it.
0: Okay, really stupid question. And this is a very specific question to me. What, What about the people that work between mediums? So, like, they're not, let's say, painters, and they're not photographers, but let's say they paint, and, they paint on photographs or things like this. Or, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the terms, like, mixed media, intermedia, these kinds of things. So, like, how is that done these days?
1: Okay, yeah, that's a good question, because the art world's really changed a lot. And this day, you don't have to say mixed media. You can really just do whatever you want to do. You know, it used to be that, yeah, you, know, you make, a, make a consistent body of work and, and have it, you know, all come from the same place, maybe visually and theoretically. But now that's really not the case anymore. Uh, you can be all over the place. You can make photographs. You can make paintings. You can do installations. You can make videos, films, do a performance. I mean, you can do everything, right? So I think I think that's what's important now to know that you can go all over the place. You don't have to say mixed media and you don't have to be defensive about the fact that you take photographs both commercially and, uh, and, and, and for your art. And then you also do collage on photographs and you're also a painter and you've done an installation or two in a small film you're an artist you can do any of those things
0: right but so in that bio in that short brief bio to catch the reader collector curator's attention what kind of terminology would we use these days so should we because i've spoken to people and some people say like just be very specific like literally spell out exactly what you do kind of thing or on the flip side of it say something like mixed media or interdisciplinary or something like this so like what's the more common thing these days
1: well you could say multimedia artist, but but you but you might as well even be more specific this artist works in multiple mediums uh filmmaker choreographer um writer and uh painter you know like that you know just 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 spell it out say it like it is there's no reason to um kind of have a new term or or feel that you have to fit into a certain profile. You know, just say okay. exactly what, what the mediums are so that way they know directly because really where we're at now is there's so much – people have so little time and are scanning everything that, that you know, that's why it's 250 words on a bio. Get it, get it in short and sweet and quick, you know. So, so right. if you're working in different mediums, just spell it out.
0: Okay. Sounds easy enough. I like it. So, okay. Moving on to artist statements. These are the bane of my existence. I hate writing artist statements because for me as a practicing artist, when I am finished with a series of work or a set or a couple of work pieces or whatever, I generally probably don't really know why I made them or what they were about. But I find that five years or 10 years down the road, if I look back at them, I'm like, Oh, I know exactly what they were about. So like, I oftentimes need time and distance to be able to look back on hindsight and figure out what was going on in my life and what the work was really about. But unfortunately, artist statements are expected to be ready at the same time as the work, and I don't know what it's about.
1: Okay, that's a good question. So an art statement is just such a completely weird piece of writing. To talk about where it came from, artist statement used to be came about in the 80s and it was, you know, in reaction to conceptual art or some people say the ascendancy of words. But basically, if you had an installation that didn't read very well in an image, you needed a quote unquote statement to explain to the jury because they wouldn't be able to see it from the images or slides that were being used then. That was reasonable enough, especially if you're a conceptual artist. But after that, on all kind of applications, artist statement just became the norm where's your artist statement and it's it's completely weird like what is it a uh, uh, your mission statement what is the work about i mean both of those are impossible questions to answer for most artists as as you're just saying
0: what is the work Correct, about yes
1: what you know so so it's it's a horrible thing really the artist statement what i would say is you know uh, there's a few ways to approach it, and, and of course, this is something that I'm big on in the classroom and we edit and everything, but like for what you're saying, you don't want to talk about what it's about. So the artist statement could be simply something about your process, how you're actually working. So get all the meaning out of it. Get, never write about why you make art, because that's painful to write about. Never write about what the meaning of it is, because that's usually pretty painful to write about. Just write about how it's built the actual process of making work, whatever it is, that's new to most viewers. So that's one way. Another way is to, if you want to get more intellectual about it, write about the, you know, write about a book that you've recently read or a movie you've seen and draw an analogy of, of, you know, of that to your work, you know? So my work is like X story or, or, you know, approaches the same, things that I just read in this book by Carl Jung. I mean, you know, if you want to do that. So that's the other way of of of, of kind of approaching it. I mean, there's more ways, but those are two ways to not make this too complex.
0: Right. I'm, I'm just thinking through some of my previous artist statements. That, I mean, in hindsight, looking back at them, I completely misunderstood what I was doing at the time because I didn't have enough time and distance away from it and now if i look back i'm like oh yeah oh no that was totally about this other thing going on in my life
1: right everybody does everybody does and and, and well i mean not only everybody you know revises it but just the idea of writing about what it's about you know is is, is very difficult and best to avoid altogether
0: do we have to like sometimes i feel like we actually even have to write sort of almost some differing statements like maybe one statement that's for grant proposals a different one for residencies a different one that's for galleries and sales and things like this like i i the one of the hardest parts is that i feel like you know i was raised and taught with the idea of like a boilerplate like so you create a boilerplate and then you adjust from that but i actually feel like there's there to a certain extent each of those needs for an artist statement almost needs something that sort of answers the different questions of each of those different purposes.
1: Yeah. In different applications. And that's very often the case. I'm glad you mentioned that depending on what you're applying to, they may be looking for something else in the artist statement, not uh, either of what I've said. Maybe they're looking for, if you're applying to a residency, a statement of why you want to be in this residency. So then you're not talking about what the art means at all. You're talking about why you believe that you're uh, you know, should be included in this residency. That's your artist statement. But of course, that has nothing to do with most other artist statements,
0: uh, yeah, I, I find the whole ok. I have my pet peeve, and I bring this up on the podcast probably too much at this point, but I'm going to do it again. the The whole granting residency funding, any sort of thing like this where we have to apply for things. i I feel like the system is a bit broken because we, as the the creators, I don't care if you run an arts nonprofit or if you're an individual practicing artist, whatever, like anybody who has to go through these sort of uh, processes of applying for support or funding, we go through all this effort and we write these things and we send them in and then we get one of two things, yes or no. And if we get yes, they don't tell us what we did right. And if they, if we get the answer is no, they don't tell us what we did wrong. So both ways, we don't, we didn't learn anything, and so therefore we can't get better at it.
1: Right, right. Well, that's that's true. That's true. One thing about grants, and ask me more questions about this if you want. Is yeah, they're they're often difficult to get through, and but there are exceptions. Like there's the Awesome Foundation. I don't know if you've heard of that. Grant I actually maker. applied
0: for one, yes.
1: So it's, a, so it's, that's, that's a, what do you think about that application? That's a pretty, that's one of the simpler applications.
0: It was insanely simple. However, I didn't get funded. So,
1: right. Okay. Well, that's not always guaranteed, but yeah, I mean, a simplicity is helpful. Some are more simple than others. I mean, is that addressing your question? You can ask me more about that if you want, but I think,
0: uh, well, okay. Here, I'll give you another thing that, like, to a certain extent, I wish that somehow the arts, industry could come up with some standardized set of things it everything is so unique like uh for instance i was looking at grants for travel right and they're pretty simple travel grants everybody knows travel grants well in certain regions they're called mobility grants certain regions they're called like emergency grants some they're called travel grants so even just the the vernacular, of how to write a grant differs from region to region and organization to organization. Because if you're applying to like a family foundation, you could probably be a bit more casual and laid back. If you're applying to a government, you you have to be you know very formal and straight to the point and use less artistic jargon and things like this. Like I really wish there would you know it would make the process from our end of the writers of these things a lot easier if there was some consistency of at least vocabulary in this stuff.
1: Well, I think there is a consistency. I think the consistency is always leave jargon out. You know, that's one of the consistencies. Always. It's not what MFA programs taught you, but that is probably, you know, conspiratorially designed to tank your art career if you use jargon consistently. You know what? 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 Everybody wants to hear is something really easy and clear to understand. You know, curators aren't interested in, 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 in you know, theory to French theorists. In your, you know, they're really not. You know, they're they're interested in. You know, what is it? Is it exciting? Is it fun? I mean, you know, is is it, is it cool? Is it you know, powerful and upsetting? I mean, like, just what is it? Let's get right to the heart of it. You know, that never goes out of fashion universally so i I would say that that is the consistency let's get right to the heart of this let's can you can you say in a way that people think wow that's pretty that's pretty intense you know i mean it was a book i recently read hold still by sally mann amazing photographer you know the last project in that book was her. There was some place in Virginia where they take bodies that have people who have died and they, yep. they, they body farm. Yeah, yeah the, the body farm, right? And she's photographing, you know, bodies in different stages of composition. I mean, you don't have to get too theoretical or explain that too many different ways. That's incredibly intense, difficult material. You get it in about a sentence. It should all be like that, you know?
0: I know. And, and that's what's sort of difficult is I feel like the, the industry is moving towards an expectation that visual artists also become eloquent writers. And we got into the visual arts because we don't know how to write and we know how to explain or express ourselves visually, but not necessarily with the written word.
1: That is right. So it's, it's, it's hard because you do have to express it with a written word. But still, I mean, just as though, you know, you know, the body Farm in those photographs. You don't need too much expression even to get across what's happening there. You know, you don't have to be a writer to say what these are. If they're, if they're, you know, Jackson Pollock didn't write a lot about his work, didn't explain it. You know, you don't, you don't have to do that. Most abstract expressionists didn't.
0: Yeah, well, Sally Mann, I mean, there's a longer story of how she got to that series because it started with an escaped prisoner that ended up having to be killed on her property and it started her down a path of interest in death and so on. And then, of course, her husband's illness and everything like this. So there's a whole lineage of things that have, you know, sort of literally you could follow her career of her works down a path of like how she got to wanting to shoot the body farm. So, I mean, that, and that, I mean, that's something else that's interesting to me is that I have had discussions with, uh, sort of art advisors and, and people like this that talk about how these days it's important that artists have a common thread through their entire career so that literally like a collector or a curator or a gallerist could could watch the progress almost of their mind, of their thoughts, of their process throughout their career instead of jumping from idea to idea.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's a lot of ways to move around the world though. And as an artist, I think you can really Yeah, I mean, even in all these books I write, there are certain structures and rules, or that that you you could say that I'm presenting. But really, you could break all those rules and do something else. You know, it's not that you have to fit into all of these these boxes. You can also break the rules and say I don't do that. You know, when I got into the Whitney Biennial, the the the, I, I had a very thin resume and I was there for an interview, and I knew like, holy cow, we're either gonna get in this or not, and one of the things I decided was I didn't, you know, they said bring a resume or, or bio or something, and I didn't want to bring either. So when I went there to talk to them with my wife, because we're a collaborative, they said, "Can you tell me something about your past or where's your resume?" And I said, "No, we don't believe in our our past at all. Um, so we have nothing from that. We don't show our past." And you know, you know, they were like, "What?" You know, but 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 of course, they had to deal with it, and and we got put in that show. And they did say it when we were leaving, "If you can tell me something, like, did you go to college, or whatever?" But you know, by then we had already either gotten in the show or not. So I, I I'm just saying, not to throw too much of a wrench in this, but you can also break all the rules. You can do whatever makes you comfortable. You're an artist. You can be eccentric and crazy.
0: And that's what we do best, actually. Yeah. <laughs>
1: right. Well, as long as you don't burn bridges, ideally
0: yeah well it's our it's our role in society to question society.
1: well, there's a lot of topics, but the other sort of like signature courses that I teach are on patrons and sponsors, developing patrons, people who give you money as well as corporations, not necessarily for your artwork but just so you can continue your practice.
0: I love it, please tell me more
1: uh, essentially, you know patrons are people who give artists money who who um you know, can be, you know, like let's say you're doing an installation or a film or something that's not even in the marketplace, can't be sold. Patrons are people who give money to museums currently, let's say trustees and board members, getting one of them to come to your studio and then explaining you have a program or a dream that's going to cost money and asking them to invest. This is a common practice. That's what uh, a lot of artists do to different degrees. And it's something that I yeah, talk quite a bit about.
0: Well, I mean that sounds amazing, but I mean to a certain extent, you already have to at least have the connections or the network to even approach those kinds of people.
1: Not really. If you want to, if you want to get to all those people right away, one way to approach it is you know mem- museums have memberships, right? And there's like the uh, artist membership for thirty bucks. There's the family membership for fifty. There's the supporting membership for a hundred. There's the you know your extra special for two hundred or three hundred, right? If you join a museum for one of those memberships like $100 or 200 a year, which isn't that much to invest in your art career, you'll start getting invited to previews that only the museum's trustees, benefactors and collectors get invited to. And that's where you could meet them all in the flesh.
0: Yeah, but what with that well and that's one of the things is I find both it's great, but it's also difficult because, for example, this podcast literally goes all over the world. So some of these people don't live necessarily where they have the opportunity to literally attend these things.
1: Oh, well, there's they're, they're, they're something near you. So the question is maybe more like, who are the wealthy people around you? Because you want to find them around you. You could write letters to people, obviously, the, the board of directors on the MoMA, whatever. But wherever you live in the world there's some nonprofit there's some theater there's some museum within driving distance most likely the trustees on those on, and the boards and all the donors to all those spaces are potential patrons how you meet them either through letter or by going to the events they go to
0: yeah i mean i'm all for it i can do it i can work a room i was taught that as a child and know how to do that but a lot of artists have a very difficult time with the, the that sort of cold walk up meet people networking stuff at events
1: absolutely but you got to do it <laughs> you know what i mean that's the thing if you're going to do it you got to do it if you, if you want to sell work to people and develop a patron what patrons are interested in is is getting to know you the artist not just here's here's a thousand dollars it's what happened this week they the reason they're in museums and becoming patrons is because they want to know more about culture and and art So they're looking for a relationship, not you know. So it's not about selling yourself or even, you know, working the room. It's about, you know, having a new friend.
0: Yeah, I mean, and this is an interesting thing that, like, I've been noticing a trend over the past, I don't know, 15 years or so that sort of even – Generally sort of artistic ideas and artist statements have gone from sort of that high intellectual conceptual to being a lot more about um, expressions and feelings and ideas of personal expressions and engagement and sort of the story of and the story behind kind of ideas, which seems to be a very popular way to um, discuss contemporary work.
1: Yeah, it's it's you know there's a lot of I guess that's interesting there's a lot of ways to explore or think about talking about contemporary work.
0: I'm not sure how to answer that as a question though. What, what 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 I'm not sure it was a question actually, but the I mean the bottom line is this is that the my podcast is called the Wise Fool and that's because I I know some things and I certainly am wrong about many other things. And so I'm sort of trying to Egg you forward, like trying to express some things that I think are correct, and I want you to either tell me yes, that's right, or no, you're completely wrong here. This is the way the world really works because <laughs> okay. you you know much more than I do for sure.
1: Okay, so so um, lay it on me. What are the questions? What is that?
0: Oh, so many questions, like countless questions. I mean, the easiest things, of course, like for me, still at this time in in the at this time with COVID and all the quarantines and all this kind of stuff, it's sort of like, what should we be doing now? Like, it, you know, our, should we be doing Instagram live studio visits? Should we be doing uh, sitting back and just like focusing on making a new body of work in preparation for the future when there will potentially be some more opportunities? Like, well, you know, what's a what's a good use of our time and energy during this time of quarantine?
1: I think a good use of your time and energy is to make art and uh, mainly as the number one thing and number two, to, um, to apply for grants and other opportunities.
0: Okay. That was too easy. All right.
1: (laughs) Well, I want to give you, if you have a lot of questions, I'll give you, I'll give you short answers through all of them so you can get through them if you want.
0: No, no, no. I love long, elaborate answers. I mean, to me, one of the big great benefits of a podcast is that you can be a very elaborate and very long and explain why not just say yes, no, Yes. No. Like you can, you know, give it, give a little bit more background and idea of why somebody should be doing these kinds of things, but you don't have to answer it for that particular one. Okay. Um, let's see where to go with this. Okay. Online. I'm still fascinated with online sales. So Sachi and all these other kinds of online purveyors, good, bad, what are your experiences and knowledge about them?
1: I think generally bad, it doesn't generate a lot of sales and you have to send um, traffic to them through a link and you're essentially sending traffic to other people's art too, so why use it?
0: All right, fair enough.
1: Uh, yeah, just <laughs> you use your own website, you know, do, it, do it your own way. Um, I mean, yeah, some people like them and maybe they're using them, but I think in general, they don't do a lot for the individual artists. They do a lot for themselves. Saatchi drives a lot of traffic to itself by having a thousand artists who are all linking to it. You know, I don't think that really serves the artists much. The artists uh are are not the number one priority for them.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, pricing of art, which I'm sure is going to change dramatically by the time this is this whole quarantine thing is all done. But where, you know, how can how can the the general practitioners sort of come to their prices because I'll tell you my background on this is that I'm from the United States. I'm in prices, I sort of understood pricing in the United States at that time, which is about 10 years ago. And then I moved to the Middle East where prices were jacked up so high and so overpriced. It was ridiculous. And now I live in Prague, Czech Republic, where I feel like the prices of art in this region are undervalued and low priced for the general worldwide market. So like, how do you, if you want to be working worldwide, how do you come up with sort of a set price?
1: Well, that's that's tricky. I mean, there are artists that have. I mean, well, it's specific in a way. There are there are plenty of artists that have galleries all over the world. One in Hong Kong, one in New York, one here, there, everywhere. And basically, it has to be the same price everywhere. You know, if you're, of course, if you're selling a different medium or something somewhere, photographs as opposed to paintings, you could do that. But prices have to stay consistent everywhere. If that's answering your question, that that keeps it simple and you know um that's that's what's fair to everybody
0: yeah i mean i knew that but it's but like I, like for instance i've gone to galleries here in the czech republic and they said oh you need to put your price lower for the czech market and i'm like but if i lower it for the czech market then i've lowered it i have to lower it elsewhere and they don't understand that they think that that's yeah that's
1: that the wrong gallery for you yeah then it's the wrong gallery i wouldn't show there because that's the, if, if they don't understand that then yeah that's not good yeah, don't show there. Has to be a gallery that can that can deal with that. That's how it should be. Unless you're showing something else there, like you make a small edition of prints. But for sure, some galleries can only sell in a certain range. They have their sweet spot. We sell between this and this, or this and this. That's up to them, you know. But if that's not within your range, then yeah, don't show there.
0: Okay, I'm still I'm still fascinated with internet stuff, and you since you literally have a book on it, I kind of want to pick your brain on that social media how much time and energy should we put, be putting into doing it
1: social media I'd say um, the most 30 minutes a week just do all your scheduling of posts through something like Hootsuite and have them all time to go out all week long you know you want you want to just you know someone once said to me you know it was a book publisher you want to be discovered have the possibility of being discovered so for greatest possibility keep sending out links of your work and whatever you're sending out to all the platforms, LinkedIn, Twitter, that you have, all by using something like a a social media dashboard. So you don't have to do it all week long, just one half an hour on the weekend.
0: I do have to admit, like, I've looked at Hootsuite and all that, and it seems great in in theory. Like, I like the idea of it because – Part of the problem is is that just the nature of just remembering when to post and, oh, did I post there? And, you know, should I post this here? And, you know, whether or not you've posted the same things on different things and, like, the idea of having a single dashboard to basically control what, where, when, and and, and on what platform is fabulous.
1: Yeah, super cool. Super cool thing to have. Do you use it? I don't, actually. I like going around and doing it, but, you know, but it takes me longer that way. I use some of it. Yeah. Some of it, some of it is automated though. What I'm posting on LinkedIn gets, you know, like, like the interviews that I do every week get, get pushed all around to all those sites. So some, some things I do and some things I don't.
0: Okay. Grants. How do you choose what is the right grant to put your time and energy into applying for?
1: Well, the grant has to, has to fit you really. Right. So, Essentially, one way to do it is right now there's a lot of grants for artists. You can just type in COVID artist support. Yeah, it's, it's, it's what you're after. It, you know, how much money do you need? Do you need a grant to make a film and you're trying to raise $100,000? Would just $500 or $1,000 help? If that'll help, start applying to all those grants right now. You know, it's, it depends what you're after. It, depending on where you live in the world, too, there'll be local grants. Go for those. You know, they're, they're not nearly as competitive as you think so uh what, whatever you're after you know it's money but it depends on the project whether it's a film or you're going to make more art or you want support for covid and and, and have being a displaced gig worker there's grants for everything it's just whatever you're you're you like most
0: does that answer your question it does yeah i mean to a certain extent because when i go through you know, i of course I'm on like Facebook groups that give out grants and residency information and things like this. And my, my difficulty with all those kinds of things is not, well, my difficulty is, is that many of them I fit like, like for me, if I'm writing them, I'll fit in like 99% of the way I'll fit perfectly. And then there'll be something at the end and says like, oh, by the way, you have to be under 35 or, oh, by the way, it's only for women. Or oh, by the way, it's only for people from Moravia or whatever. Like, the, the, I feel like the granting system has is in many ways, maybe up until now, maybe this will change at this point, but has been overly specialized in many ways. Yeah, it
1: is. Well, I mean, there now with the COVID thing, it's less so. It's just you know a thousand bucks for you know just apply and tell us what's going on. But yeah, it is. But I, I, I think it's specialized so that you can get a grant for just what you want. You know, as a I mean, it has to be to some extent, because every nonprofit that gives away these monies has to have some kind of a mission, right? Yeah. So I think that's where that comes in too.
0: Yeah, no, I totally understand that. I used to run a nonprofit, but they as I feel like they're a bit overly specialized. Like there's one thing to just say, like, you know, like I love the good the ones that are like aperture and things like this you know they'll support anything photographic and like that's pretty much all their criteria is you know st- you know things like that but i i like i read one that was like we only give grants to people who do ecologically friendly work that's that are between the ages of like 18 and 30 and they're only from like central europe and women <laughs> like i mean it
1: Sure, sure there's a lot well they're trying to find people who aren't represented as much to do that but yeah that's something you see more and more you know that's how we get in underrepresented communities i think but but yeah there's more and more that absolutely it's never just open field when it, when it used to be that you just had you know more men than anything else uh, uh getting grants and and so that that's happening now because they're trying to balance that a little bit i think
0: oh and i totally understand that as a general whole and i'm not a and anyway, saying that this, it shouldn't be certain things to help underprivileged or underrepresented uh, groups, for sure. But it does make it difficult when they're like these things have become so finite. But that's just me. I guess that's some Yeah, no, it's true.
1: It does. You just have to keep looking, keep looking at things because there's lots, there's lots of things out there just for you. You know, from the Awesome Foundation grant to all these COVID grants to, you know, just look locally, just look at them all, and you'll, you'll, you'll find ones that are for you. And they're not for you, but that's one of the rules of grants is read through the whole thing before starting it. It'll probably take 10 minutes usually to read through most grants, and and you'll see right away whether it's for you and, and then not waste your time.
0: Yeah, indeed. Any other last topic that you have that you sort of want to touch on? Would you like to promote anything you're about to Yeah, I, or... think, I think
1: the last... The last topic I'd like to mention is uh, community. And, um, you know, you can build your own community, but that's essentially what my online school is, Praxis Center for Aesthetics. There's a lot of courses and we get into depth on a lot of the things we've discussed today, but even more than a a learning center and a center for support, it's a a community. And I think artists need community, whether you build it where you are or, or, uh, you know, learn more about Praxis Center. if there's any links here then you know uh that'll that'll help you in in whatever you do in the future because uh you know it's a it's a kind of lonely job being an artist and having the support of a community i think is important
0: oh yeah i made a, a one very dramatic mistake over the course of my career which is I uh, I moved too much, and I did not continue to keep my community and my networks tight and strong. And I lost a lot of the good things that I built early in my career every, when I started moving uh, between continents. For sure. So yeah, I mean, finding your tribe and having a community and having that is of the utmost importance. And I made I made the mistake in my own career of not doing enough of that, and so part of this podcast is to try and sort of, you know, reach out and build a little bit more of a community again.
1: I like that. I think that's what podcast is for. I love that.
0: I hope so. I mean, before the, this, uh, COVID, I would not have even done this virtually at all. I was doing this podcast by literally traveling city to city, Um, so you know getting creative and being sort of uh, encouraged to come up with new ways to continue the podcast you know sort of forced me to the point of you doing these virtually and now i've had the opportunity to talk to some amazing people around the world that i would not have talked to otherwise
1: yeah that's wonderful i love that
0: all right well thank you very much for your time
1: you're so welcome thank you so much for having me on